Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Elizaveta Reichlina, and I'm a host of the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies channel. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Ian Garner, a cultural historian and translator of Russian culture and war propaganda. He completed his PhD at the University of Toronto in 2017 after studying at the University of Bristol and the St. Petersburg State Conservatory. His academic work focuses on Soviet and Russian literary and cultural representations of war. Today, we'll be speaking about his new book, Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival, which is out this year from McGill Queens University Press. Ian, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm delighted to have you with us today. Before we dive into your book, Could you begin by telling our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to this topic? Oh boy, that's a terrible question to ask as a first question, because how do you summarize 10 years of work in a few sentences? So this this book is my first book. It came in a sense out of my PhD dissertation, where I was focusing on a much broader swathe of what I called the Stalingrad myth. And I was interested in questions of Russian identity. What What is it that makes Russians tick, in particular around war, and especially around this battle of Stalingrad, which seems to pop up everywhere in Russian culture, not just today, but continually over the last 80 years or so. And we are celebrating, or perhaps marking rather than celebrating, 80 years since the end of Stalingrad. And in particular, when I was choosing my dissertation topic, what got me going was this film, the Fyodor Bondarchuk Stalingrad film, big box office sort of gangbuster movie back in 2013 or thereabouts, which the Russian state funded. And it's a pretty hammy World War II movie. And the state paid to have it showed all all around the world. I went to watch it on Young and Dunder Square in downtown Toronto, which is like the big movie theatre. It's like Times Square, but 
smaller because it's Canadian. And it was me and my then uh, girlfriend, now wife, who is Russian, and a bunch of other expats Russian, expat Russians in the movie theater. Now, you know, we got 20 minutes in, people dying all over the place, civilians being, you know, tortured, women, children crying, nasty Germans, classic stuff. And I thought, well, this is pretty cliched. And yet I looked around and everybody else in the movie theater is wrapped. People are in tears. People are genuinely moved by what is a mediocre war film at best. And so that was really the question that I set out to answer. What is going on here? What is it about Stalingrad that moves people, even today, even expats, that doesn't seem to apply to other battles of World War II, to Kursk or, you know, the Battle of Sevastopol? People care, of course, but they don't seem to care in this deep way. And so for the dissertation, what I did was I took a huge corpus of texts and I started by running topic modeling on them to figure out what is the language of Stalingrad. And what I observed very quickly is that there are certain key kind of phrases, bits and pieces of language, chunks of meaning that keep getting thrown up regardless of the context, regardless of when they were produced pro-government, anti-government, it's the same stuff being recycled over and over again. In the dissertation, I unpacked why that was the case and how that was the case over 20 years. And what I discovered was that almost all of the language that Russians recognize as being Stalingrad, quote unquote, today, came from the front line when a huge, well, maybe a dozen or two dozen journalists were sent off to write from the front, big name writers like Vasily Grossman, Konstantin Simonov, and they were there with the troops in the battle, writing these great pieces of fiction and filing for the newspapers. And so the book then expands on this corpus and takes what was a chapter in the dissertation and turns it into a full length product, asking exactly how did these writers go about their business? How did people respond at the time? What were they reading? What did they make of what they were reading? How did they wrap it into their identity as the battle was unfolding? And as I unwrap that story, I present in translation, I don't know, maybe two dozen stories written by Grossman, Simonov, Viktor Nikrasov, and a whole bunch of others that you might not have heard of, but are awesome, awesome and fascinating writers, asking how those writers in turn were using their writing to respond to what were incredibly visceral and traumatic scenes they were witnessing at the front. So in um, reading these stories that were published in the Soviet newspapers, uh, what kinds of uh, recurring messages and themes uh, did you find um, in, in, you know, looking at uh, what is a very... A wide cross-section of this periodical content. The overarching message is that Stalingrad was a moment of necessary sacrifice, that Stalingrad was a kind of a national martyrdom. And we tend to think about Stalingrad in the West, and indeed this was another motivating factor and something that was curious for me as I was starting to fish around in this topic. We tend to think of Stalingrad and these great sort of horrible trench 
conflicts as being things that were senseless, right? When we think about World War I, for example, in the West, we often think about trench warfare. We'll say, well, it was a waste. It was pointless. They were led by donkeys. It was all futile. And yet the Russian reading of Stalingrad, even from pretty much from day one of the battle, was that this is going to be a monumental conflict in which we're going to send young men to die in order to save the world. And what you actually get from reading the stories in the book is the sense that this isn't just a sort of a historical description or a, a factual portrayal of what's happening. It has these elements of religiosity about it, that this is almost this sort of Christ-like myth that these men had to die to save the nation, that Stalingrad itself and the city is personified. It becomes this sort of living being. The city has to be tortured. It has to be killed. And the greater the suffering, the greater the death, the greater the resurrection. And as soon as the Soviets start winning, which happens in mid-November at Stalingrad in 1942, we suddenly find all these sort of this great bursting forth of metaphors and ideas around light and dawn and melting rebirth, life born anew. And in between the stories in the book, I present the ways in which people responded to this by taking chunks of those stories they were reading in the press. And the press really was how most people were getting their information and started using them in things like letters and diaries and to write their own fiction. They clearly very strongly identified with this material. I think that's really fascinating because we so often think of Soviet fiction and Soviet propaganda as something that was somehow opposed to public opinion or something that people rejected rather than actually embracing and using to make sense of what was a very difficult time for them when you know, the obliteration on the Eastern Front was just unthinkably awful. Millions of people were dying. Villages and towns were being obliterated on, on a grand scale that's quite unfathomable compared to what was happening on the Western Front. And people didn't know how to make sense of this. And so they grabbed at what they could. And it was a wise decision of the authorities to pick up their very best fiction writers because people like Grossman knew how to write great fiction. And of course, the fiction produced at the front isn't as good as his post-war masterpieces, his Stalingrad or Zapravedyala, the For a Just Cause and Life and Fate. But it's good quality fiction. It's moving fiction. And, and there are moments where, having read it and having sort of followed these people through the battle, I, I find really quite moving, especially towards the end of the volume, when you can feel, especially some of the, there are some native Stalingraders in there, discussing what happened to them and discussing their feelings as the battle as their hometown was sort of supposedly reborn. It's, it's an, an emotional moment and it takes you on a journey. And hopefully by reading the book, people will have some sense, not a full sense, just a little hint of what it might have been like to follow this battle day by day and week by week. So the language uh, quickly became uh, popularized and uh, adopted into the language of everyday life, as you say, in the letters that people were writing to each other, right? You see these snippets of phrases that were uh, printed uh, in the newspapers. Do you, 
did you find that the 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 group of writers that you follow um did they have a sense of okay how are we going to go about writing about this um incredible uh, incredibly violent and um uh sort of life altering uh, events um how how did they approach uh doing this you know because they are writing for sort of on behalf of the state and the official newspapers and and everything but um do you see their agency their indiv- their individual decisions in how they chose to write i think i think you genuinely do to quite a surprising degree and the amount of laxity they had in what they were allowed to write about will really surprise people and the amount of articles that were amended or outright refused during the stalingrad period was very, very small. And Lisa, I know you've read the book, and I don't know if you noticed those numbers, but when I saw them, and I I double-checked and triple-checked them, it's quite astonishing that the writers were allowed to draw on whatever they wanted. But yes, they really struggled to understand how to come to terms with this. So I think the best example is Konstantin Simonov, who I think is a really good writer, as Soviet writers go, and a talented writer who deserves better recognition in the West as somebody who was working within the socialist realist genre, but was one of the better examples of it. Now, he travelled to the front in September when the fighting had really got going and things were already very, very difficult. He went with the editor of Krasnozia which is Red Star, one of the major newspapers. And Simonov and Ortenberg, this editor, spent several days travelling around the front, getting right up close to the fighting, and there was one description that I read that Ortenberg and Simonov remembered afterwards of being on the on the Kurgan, the central Kurgan, which is the hill at the center of Stalingrad, where the big statue that everybody has seen stands today. And Ortenberg really or Simonov really struggling to describe the trauma, these, you know, piles of broken and battered young men, hundreds of bodies, thousands of bodies of this landscape that's just been completely torn apart, which is surprising given that Simonov has already spent two and a half years at war because he's already been covering Halkin Gol, which is takes place in 1939. So he's been around. He's seen some really awful stuff. And he, he thinks that Stalingrad is really the very worst thing to have happened. And this is where to get all scholarly, this is where suddenly the Soviet literary method works. Because socialist realism is all about drawing on these bits and pieces of material from elsewhere. It's all about copying and imitation. And so it gives people structure. Because Simonov doesn't have to go away and wait for inspiration to blow in on the wind to produce a socialist realist piece of text. He can draw on material from the classical realm. He can draw on material from 19th century classics, from Tolstoy in particular. War and Peace is a big point of reference. He can draw on the socialist realist greats. He can draw on documentary evidence and interviews he's seeing at the front, staple all these things together into something that's cohesive. And the lesser writers at the front in particular who are really struggling, and in particular Vasily Karachev, who is a native Stalingrader and is 
equally, if not more traumatized by what he's seeing than Simonov. He draws on material that he's reading that Simonov is writing as he goes. Right. So there is this sort of almost circular process as these writers are living together and working together at the front. They're informing each other as much as the literary past and the propaganda present is informing their work too, which is really, really fascinating because this process of producing material and producing a national story or a national myth is happening at lightning speed in a way that I don't think it's really ever happened before certainly not to Russia, perhaps in the First World War and to the Western nations who were sending correspondence to the front, but to have so many people working in this way together at such a difficult time is something quite novel. Do you find that over the course of the war and perhaps in the years, in the immediate aftermath as well, the the language that they use and the way that they're writing about uh, Stalingrad changes in any way. Does it? Do you see a kind of evolution in in the writing? Absolutely, it is very noticeable, and you'll perceive it when you read the book. That up until November the nineteenth, Stalingrad always looks like it's about to fall, and you are asked to believe, you're asked to have faith that Stalingrad will somehow hold out. Now, militarily, the counterattack that happens on November the 19th is a huge long shot. They manage to encircle the German forces. Nobody really expects it. No, Almost nobody expects it's really going to work. It's a roll of the dice, and yet it does. And almost within days, Stalin is claiming victory for himself. And suddenly, this is not the feat of the Soviet people. This is a masterful plan by what becomes an increasingly omniscient Stalin, who has planned all of this out to perfection, who has known since the summer that the Germans are going to make a counterattack, who has lured the Germans to Stalingrad, and has cleverly played played the German armies and won the victory. So thank you, genius Stalin. And what happens to the journalists after Stalingrad? The fight, so the fighting wraps up. It keeps going until early February, but the Germans are really struggling more and more. And the image we have in the West is of you know Germans freezing to death, disease, starving in Stalingrad. But really, the Soviet or the Russian narrative of this is very much focused on the stuff that happens before that. But increasingly, the writers find that they have less freedom because the Soviets know they're going to win the war. They're restricted in what they can say and do, and they get frustrated by this. Some of the writers, of course, most famously Grossman, well, Grossman goes off and writes his Stalingrad novel for a just cause and then recants. It takes him seven years to publish it. He actually really struggles to publish it. Then he publishes Life and Fate, and the entire story of Life and Fate is the height of freedom was in Stalingrad when we were closed off from Stalin and from Stalin's telephone lines, Stalin's orders and Stalin's command, right? And in the late 40s as well, I'm not going to go into it because I don't talk about it too much in the book, but there are some pretty outrageous stuff 
that happens. There's some terrible movies where Stalin really is turned into a, a god. And you can read, if you're interested, there is a book by Jan Plamper that is all about Stalin's image. And it's it's a great read, an easy read in the sense that it's very well written, but very profound and insightful. So in the book, I present a sort of a postscript to all of this. There are two stories at the end. One, 10 years later, Vasily Karatiev, this Stalingrader who keeps holding on to the dream of Stalingrad, the idea that rebuilt Stalingrad is this sort of heavenly, holy place. It's the embodiment of the nation. And a story 20 years later by Viktor Nikrasov, who is a Ukrainian-Soviet writer who fought at Stalingrad. And his story um, is confusing, to say the least. And what he does is he blows apart the meaning of Stalingrad as he throws us back and forth in time and forces us to sort of question what we believe is really true in the ways in which the state has constructed identities and narratives around the battle. And um, people are not deeply impressed with Nikrasov and he ends up being exiled fairly soon, seven or eight years after this story is published. He has increasing troubles and eventually has to move to Paris where he dies. In um, tracking, you know, how these stories filter down and how people uh, adopted the language that they saw on the pages of the Soviet newspapers, do you find that, um, you know, the readers, uh, the Soviet reader, did they find that the switch to the sudden prominence of Stalin and as, you know, this grand strategist and um, uh, sort of reason why the victory is possible, um, is there any kind of reaction to that? Do they, do they accept that message as well? Did you find any kind of reader... Um, sort of variation or response to the shifting messages that they're seeing on on the pages of the press. So I think there is a there is a genuine frustration that the victory is being taken away from ordinary people, yeah. and we see that with folks like Viktor Nikrasov, who writes a novella in the trenches of Stalingrad, which was published in 1946. And he wins a Stalin Prize for it, and then rapidly comes under a whole load of criticism because it is a Stalingrad novel that is produced very much along the lines of this sort of um, drag-and-drop, copy-paste approach. And it's more nuanced than that. It's a great novel. It's really interesting if, you, if you'd like to read more of this sort of uh, fiction. But it takes the Stalin out of Stalingrad. And it doesn't ultimately doesn't go down too well. And what Grossman really struggles with when he's publishing his first big Stalingrad novel is not putting enough Stalin in Stalingrad. And I think the mark of how little this sort of story of Stalin, the, the god, caught on is the fact that the language of it disappeared as soon as Stalin disappeared. Ordinary people just stopped using it when they didn't have to. And yet the language of the, the material that was produced at the front, the material in the book, keeps on coming back time after time after time to the point that some of the memoirs I looked at when I was doing research 
from the 70s and 80s and even the 90s, even the post-Soviet period, of people claiming that here's what happened to me, this is most definitely true, they're actually telling stories that are wholly or partly influenced by material that they've read from the papers, whether they read the papers or whether those stories have been recycled through multiple further iterations. That's fascinating. Um, how how the you know sort of the afterlives of the of the stories that um, that you you write about and that you translate in in this book. I wanted to also ask you about the role that these stories have in the creation of this World War II myth, the role of Stalingrad in a larger sort of Soviet World War II myth. How crucial are these stories in creating this narrative? Well, up up until Stalingrad, I think they're really casting around for a, a sort of a narrative focal point to hang the great idea that there would be a turning point in the war, that they could win the war off. And and it's surprising that they didn't manage to do it with Moscow in December 1941, because that has such great historical parallels of Napoleon coming up to the gates of Moscow and setting fire to Moscow and being covered in war and peace. Great Russian victory, well done, off we go. And of course, it doesn't help that they embarrassingly capitulate to the Germans in the first half of the summer of 1942. And that's why the Germans end up at Stalingrad in the first place, which is never covered very much in Stalingrad stories. But Stalingrad just seems to be, it it feels like all the right things just align around Stalingrad. It's named after Stalin, perfect. It's a city that has been which I don't get into in too much detail in the book, a city that has been the center of sort of development of the of the an, an idea of Sovietness in the 1920s and 1930s, the site of rapid industrialization, a site that's often talked about as being somehow emblematic of a new Soviet way of life. And the beauty of it is just this suddenness of the about turn. Because this this Christian myth that I'm talking about is built around a sudden turn, right? The turn of, and without boring everybody with theory, read Northrop Fry on myth, read the anatomy of criticism. You know, it's built around sort of counterpoint, right? Darkness to light, winter to summer, night and day. The historical facts of the battle just seem to work so beautifully to make this the perfect myth. And so they keep hammering it home time and time and time again, and nothing really matches up to it. And, you know, Kursk afterwards, even the battle for Berlin, it it all comes kind of, or it all sort of follows on from Stalingrad. It's all thanks to Stalingrad that it happened, thanks to these little moments. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. How do you find the sort of transformation of the Stalingrad myth in the years that follow um, in in the context, and here I'm thinking of in the context of uh, Nikita Khrushchev's desalinization, right? How do you have a Stalingrad myth when the the name of the city is later changed, right? In 1961, how do you have a Stalingrad myth, and when there is no, it, when it is no longer called Stalingrad? Well, how does that work? Quite, quite comical when I when I did all the topic modeling of the various forms. Well, I was like, well, Stalingrad disappears as a topic for several years in the 1960s. And they are still publishing the same books. They're still publishing Simonov's novels and Simonov's collections of stories from the front, and even Grossman's collections of stories from the front. But what they do is they go through and everything becomes the battle on the Volga. And there are a few other synonyms that they might throw in instead. I don't recall all of them off the top of my head. But it's just this sort of, I mean, if you want an example of rewriting of history, well, there, there you have it. Right. But as soon as Bre- um, Brezhnev takes charge, we go back to calling things Stalingrad. And the idea of Volgograd and the Battle on the Volga kind of die, at least historically, and in terms of the content that's that's published and republished, although they stop publishing Grossman for obvious reasons. And one of the things I did as part of the research for this was I went and I tried to find every single work of fiction that has ever been published about Stalingrad. So I read through the publishing lists of everything that was published in the Soviet Union for every year from 1942 until 2013. It was one of the most intensely boring periods of my life, looking for anything that might possibly be about Stalingrad. I found a lot of things. If you want to know what they are, go look at my PhD dissertation. You can find it online. Bore yourself as I bored myself. They keep publishing about Stalingrad. It doesn't slow down just because it's associated with Stalin, even during the process of de-Stalinization. And in particular, there is a peak in 1965, which is the 20th anniversary of the end of the war. There was a big peak, a ton of material, millions of books are being published about this. Do you find that the the reason for that has to do with a kind of... Um... You know, in the in the in the process of destalinization, they know that there there is this sort of central heroic narrative now that cannot be touched because it has sort of solidified as the core around which sort of the the Soviet um, the narrative and and the entire sort of reason for um, for for its existence, right? It has now shifted the importance of, for example, um, you know, World War II and, and, and Stalingrad, they, they, they push out even the October Revolution in terms of significance as a kind of state-forming sort of um, event, as a kind of crucible for identity, for um, 
for defining uh, sort of the reason for the state and giving meaning to the state. Yeah, I think absolutely you're right. And it really becomes, or World War II really becomes the justification for why the Soviet ruling class is the Soviet ruling class after the Second World War. This is the so-called cult of the Great Patriotic War and the idea of the generational debt. You owe this to your fathers and your grandfathers. And so what we have is under Khrushchev, well, guess who was in Stalingrad as a fairly senior ranking official during the time of the battle? No less than Nikita Sergeyevich. And so there's lots of Stalingrad material that suddenly features Khrushchev. What a surprise. In he comes. When Brezhnev comes along, well, unfortunately, he wasn't at Stalingrad, which is bad news for him. But what does he do? Well, he has a book written about his own heroic exploits during the war. And we see lots of other figures trying to line themselves with Stalingrad and write themselves into the narrative of World War II. And listen up, kids, the young whippersnappers. You owe everything to us because we died for you in the war. Well, of course, you didn't die because you were the people who didn't really have to do the fighting, the proper fighting at the front. And it's interesting, actually, that this is this is the narrative today, isn't it, under Putin? And this is this has been the key. If we go back to ideas around quasi-religious ideas, this has been key to the Putin regime: the idea that somehow we owe this all to the generation of the grandfathers, or more realistically, the great grandfathers. And to be the best Russian you can be, you have to sacrifice yourself in the pursuit of some sort of abstract war of civilizations, a clash with the West, a repudiation of fascism, but you can't because there's never really a sacrifice that you can make because there never really is as great a war or as great a battle as Stalingrad that you can fight in. Therefore, you're perpetually in debt to the ruling classes. I'm glad you brought up the contemporary uh, application and sort of interpretation of this uh, Stalingrad myth and narrative, um, because I I wanted to ask how how do you find that the that the narrative evolves over the course of sort of the late Soviet period? So we're going into Perestroika now, right? Uh, Vasily Grossman's life and fate is allowed to be published for the first time in the 80s, right, under under Perestroika. Um, how do you find that the that the story of Stalingrad and the, the narrative of sacrifice, how does that change over the course of the late Soviet period and then into the 1990s and then the Putin era? So perhaps surprisingly in, in the late 80s and the 90s, there isn't much questioning of this narrative. It doesn't really open up to a huge number of variations and different readings. And even when you look at something like Life and Fate, Grossman opens up the idea of Steingrad to being read in multiple ways, that there are multiple narratives around the battle, but he doesn't really question the idea that the fighting that happened by ordinary people was a great and heroic achievement, right? Still, undoubtedly, the people that fight and die at Stalingrad are great heroes in in Grossman's mind. And I think that's fair. I don't think that's unreasonable at all. 
And there are some sort of weird renditions of Stalingrad. This is a postmodernist novel by, uh, or might be a novella or a short story. I don't recall off the top of my head because I haven't read it for about eight years. Um, by Yerofiev. There are some sort of minor subversions of it in different keys, but not much. And what we have is a continual publication and republication of the same old stories, the same novels, until the 2000s, when those things, of course, keep getting republished. But what we have is a whole new trend of... Are you familiar with the idea of the uh, Papadansi novels, this idea of like traveling through time and stuff like that? Yeah, okay, so Lisa, Lisa is nodding and smiling. Um, so these are sort of cheap pulp fiction usually extremely nationalist, sort of racist, aggressive rhetoric about time travel, often sci-fi themes, where ordinarily a sort of slightly hard-done-by tough guy from the 2000s will get a knock on the head and fall through time and end up refighting Stalingrad. And here he is allowed to live out the fantasy of finally playing out, you know, I can fight that great battle that I, you know, is physically impossible for me to fight. Here's what it would feel like. And I, a few years ago, I wrote a paper on how these novels were produced, and most of them came out of a particular online forum frequented by a really scary bunch of extreme nationalists, very unpleasant people who would swap ideas, show off drafts, copy material from one another, and reproduce these, you know, these works, and they're all terrible in endless quantities. But isn't it interesting that that sort of online forum in some ways recreates that atmosphere of the battle itself that I was talking about, where writers were working together, recycling each other's material, trying to sort of find ways to deal with what I think genuinely in 1942 was traumatic, and today is the trauma of a masculinity that's sort of somehow unrealized, let's say. Yes, it's fascinating, actually, those novels, because, I mean, unlike the the group of writers you follow in your book, where they were placed in circumstances where they had to make sense of everything that was happening around them, these uh, 2000s, you know, early early 2000s novelists uh, or message board novelists, whatever you want to call them, they're, they're kind of looking, they're, they're in search of a heroic narrative and they find that Stalingrad is the sort of imaginary arena where they can make that happen, where that is actually possible. So if they're going to time travel to anywhere, that's you know at the top of their list where they can suddenly make those heroic scenarios come true, right? right? Um, given the very um, precarious state of, of uh, Russia in the early 2000s um, and ever more so today, but um, the, the kind of uh, demand for, you know, recreating these heroic narratives, trying to find some kind of um, sort of counterbalance to what was a feeling of mass masculinization um it just speaks i think to the real real significance and real centrality of of what you write about in the book right how 
the language of Stalingrad never leaves. It is uh, recycled. It is rehashed, and it it. I mean, this is this is the title of your book, right? Stalingrad lives. It continues to live in the imagination from the people in the chat rooms to the people in the Kremlin to uh, the press, right, and everything in between. Um, how how have you found the Stalingrad narrative to be repurposed under uh, the official propaganda? You mentioned watching the film that was uh, the Bandarchuk film from 2013, which is this very over-the-top um, uh, film about uh, the struggle and the heroic sacrifice and everything, right? Um, how have you found that the the narrative of Stalingrad has been repurposed in in new ways under uh, under Putin and Medvedev, and then Putin again, and especially now as we are uh, speaking, as we are recording um, during Russia's war in Ukraine. Well, let's let's talk about this Bondarchuk film a little bit because it's so fascinating. And you can find it with English subtitles easily online if you fancy torturing yourself for a couple of hours. It's, it, it's not terrible. It's, it's quite an entertaining watch, but it's not going to move you to tears in the way that it moves some to tears. Um, it begins with a framing narrative and closes with that narrative. And it's set in, I think, after an earthquake in Japan, and Russian emergency services are helping out, and there are some young Germans trapped under a building. And the emergency services workers are sort of talking to the people that are trapped as they go and saying, well, I had five fathers. And then we rush back to 1942, and the 1942 section, I believe, opens with men getting into rowing boats and rowing across the Volga River, which is on fire. And it's all sort of hyped up with this sort of slightly video game aesthetic and tracking shots. But if you read Stalingrad Lives, you'll say, ah, I know exactly where that image comes from. I can tell you exactly the story that that first cropped up in. So it's the, it's the same old stuff, right? No, Note for note. But what's interesting is that this film was released with a huge amount of state money behind it in 2013. This is when Putin is firing up what has been referred to as his patriotic shift, his move towards a more ideologized life, a much more sort of traditional version of what he would call traditional values, but of course as a hodgepodge of ethno-nationalist stuff. The less said, the better. And the film is the film is really aimed at a youth audience, not kids. But you know, this is a film that older teenagers would watch, young men in their twenties would watch and enjoy, as they did. Took a big box office haul, and this film is showing them that here are the sacrifices you have to make for the state. You should be expecting to do another Stalingrad at any moment, and lo and behold, frequently. The battles of the present are, related, are referred to as a new Stalingrad. So we saw the battle for Donetsk Airport back in 2014 was the new Stalingrad. And today in the press, everything is the new Stalingrad. 
every day we're told that something is the new Stalingrad. This is the new Stalingrad. It's like Stalingrad. And Putin drags up this language of the war to say, have faith. Right? Believe, because the turnaround is coming. No matter how bad things look in the present, this is a necessary sacrifice that we're making. We're fighting off another invasion from the West. And younger Russians who are watching this today, you know, perhaps not those millennials who are heading to Kazakhstan and Georgia as fast as they possibly can to avoid going to the front. You know, if you're a 10-year-old, then this is the environment you've grown up in. Well, you don't really remember what things were like before the patriotic shit, because the government is coating the political discourse in layer after layer of this sort of stuff by repeating these myths. And in Stalingrad, unlike in many of many other of its myths, it has something that is potent that people really do believe in. And that at its core, as I show in the book, there is something meaningful in here. There is something real, and there were great and heroic sacrifices made at the front by many people. And the journalists who were there writing these stories were there to record that, and they did it quite honestly and quite frankly. And it's sad that these afterlives of the battle, as you referred to them, Lisa, have been so corrupted and twisted continually from, as I've pointed out, the pretty much the very day of the counterattack that won the battle. Ever since the state has been using these narratives in quite fiendish ways to buttress support for militarism and buttress support for war and making people sacrifice themselves. And it's notable that the the journalists of today, and here I'm speaking about the, the journalists who are on state TV, because the television is how the majority of people do receive their information uh, today, although it, it varies by generation and age, but um, television plays an incredibly influential role. Um, so the journalists who are on state TV, they're the ones who are constantly referring every single day to this is this is like Stalingrad or this is the new Stalingrad. And rehashing this uh, image, uh, knowing that it has emotional valence, knowing that when you say to a person, not even a Soviet, necessarily someone who was born in the Soviet Union, but even like you said, the 10-year-olds, right, who grew up on these patriotic films and um, they, this is the image that they have of the past. This is their understanding of history. When they evoke Stalingrad, they know that that will have a kind of immediate uh, effect on on the audience, on on the people who are watching and listening to the program. And once that is evoked, the idea is everything that follows. That you know we must make this decision because it involves these sacrifices and so on. That message goes down better because. That people have been primed. It does. And there's some really fascinating research. Um, check out Felix Kravatsek and Nina Fries, who are based in Berlin, have done some research on the ways that young people talk about the war and about the past. And they found that while, while people proclaim themselves to be politically apathetic, you know, not very interested in the state's project, they can pretty fluently talk this language of Stalingrad and this language of the Second World War. 
they can come out with these narratives and say that these narratives and preserving these narratives and these memories is incredibly important. And this this gives the state a really, really powerful tool. And it's also, so I mentioned television, but it's also in the in the schools. It's in the history textbooks and uh, that language again, right? If you're uh, reading um, the textbooks that they use in the schools or if you're watching the state, TV, it's it's um, it's all part of the sort of same linguistic ecosystem, and it's self-reinforcing, right? Um, so even if someone, like you said, it claims to be apolitical, doesn't really follow um, or is interested in politics, which is kind of the default answer for the vast majority of people in Russia. If you ask them about their opinion, they nevertheless are able to fluently speak in this language of Stalingrad because it's in the history books, it's in the movies, it's in the culture that's uh, sponsored by the state, that's produced, the cultural products produced by the state, um, whether in film or in TV programming. And and by the way, these films are often then shown on TV, uh, sort of around the clock as well. Um, not just They're not just in theaters. Um, the Bandarchuk film included. So um, before we end, uh, I wanted to ask you uh, if you could tell our listeners about what project or projects you're currently working on and uh, if there are any kind of overlaps between this book, Stalingrad Lives, and what you're working on right now. Cool. So book number two, which I am editing the proofs of right now, is called Z Generation, Into the Heart of Putin's or Russia's Fascist Youth. It was originally called Putin's Fascist Youth, but I'm not sure he's going to survive that long. So we changed the title. And it is a more of a kind of a trade book. Um, so it's more accessible, but it is all about interviews, life stories with people who have produced this language of Putinism and sold it to young people. I talked to young people who are involved in things like the Youth Army, some of the people that lead those organizations, you know, the Cub Scouts with Guns that you might have seen if you're not too familiar with this stuff, and figure out what, to what extent do they really believe this. And so it's a continuing conversation with the Stalingrad book, even though it may not immediately seem obvious, to understand how people absorb language and absorb identity from popular culture, and especially today, how they share it online, because we don't have this single vehicle of everybody reading the newspapers or indeed everybody watching television. What I'm really interested in is to what extent will these narratives stick around after Putin's gone? And you have to read the book to find out more, shameless plug, but the answer is bleak. And I suggest that the nature of social media means that these narratives are going to be self-perpetuating, even if in more fragmented bubbles than before, for a long, long time. And that young Russians growing up today, even if, as we've talked about, they may not identify as highly political subjects, are going to be highly politicized subjects. They are going to be fluent in a language of whether we call it Putinism or something else, but a language that is ethno-nationalist, that is highly homophobic, and that is predisposed towards militarism and war as a solution to 
many of the country's problems, whether that is war outside of Russia's borders or a sort of, um, you may not call it war, but violent struggle within the country against fifth columnists, traitors, homosexuals, ethnic minorities, or whoever is labelled as the latest other. The latest enemy of the state, indeed. Absolutely. Um, I'm I'm going to ask you right now about interviewing you for that one as well. <laughs> so we'll be back. We'll be back for that because uh, that that's an incredibly timely project uh, that you're working on. Um, so thank you for for that. And um, where can our listeners follow you in the meantime and uh, sort of find your work and follow you online? So you can find me on Twitter and all the other social networks that Elon Musk is trying to ban. And the username is IRGarner. That's G-A-R-N-E-R. So I would love to chat to anybody. I will happily answer questions if you send me messages. Always happy to uh, interact with people and learn more about what other people are working on. Wonderful. We'll be sure to link all of those in the show notes. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, Best of luck on all of your uh, projects going forward. we're, we're looking forward to having you back on the NBN. Thank you for having me. Um, and to our listeners, uh, thank you for listening to this episode and be sure to check out Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival Everywhere Books Are Sold. This has been New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Until next time. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.